Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that my short story is available for free at johntilton.com. If you sign up for my newsletter, I'll send you both the ebook and audiobook of Doomed Dune. In this middle grade adventure, a girl named Melina travels to a forbidden landmark guarded by tyrannical robots, but her life turns upside down when she discovers the true reason it's off limits. Discover Doom Doom Secret by heading over to johntilton.com. That's J-O-N-T-I-L-T-O-N.com. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Cause of Craft. I'm your host, John Tilton. Why do we create? Where do our ideas come from? What does our craft say about us? These are the ideas we explore here on the show. Each episode, I interview a different guest, from writers and painters to musicians and filmmakers. Together, we investigate the creative process and the reasons behind why we create. Are patterns in story connected with patterns in music? Is something Plato said relevant to cautioning us about the metaverse? On this episode, I chat with pianist Jeff Dershin about how proper listening can create opportunity to connect with your audience and add extra meaning to your art. We also discuss audience participation, the hero's journey, and why it's important to choose a path in life that has heart. And remember, this holiday season, if you're looking for a gift to give others that won't cost you a thing, consider connecting your friends and family with Cause of Craft. At Christmas dinner or at that New Year's party, take your friend's cell phone, open up their podcasting app, search Cause of Craft, and hit that subscribe button. You'll have given them hours of free content with creatives talking about their craft and why they create. And really, could you ask for a better gift than that? But in all seriousness, every time you share this podcast with a friend, it really does help the show grow. I can't thank you enough for supporting me in this way. I hope you all enjoy this conversation and have a Merry Christmas. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Uh, Hey there, Jonathan. It's nice to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. So a little behind the scenes tidbits for the listeners. You were actually my piano teacher for the better part of a decade of of my life. I was, I was. And I think when I met you, you were maybe like 10 or 11 years old. Yeah, it sounds about right. And so in your continuing to teach today, is that correct? I, I still have a couple of students, but most of what I do today is not teaching. Most of what I do is performing. And I do, as is appropriate, uh, shows for older audiences, mostly um, retired folks. And this is a just a singular joy and surprise for me at this at this stage of my life. And how did you first get involved with that? Well, I was minding my own business. <laughs> and uh, this was a few years ago when I moved to Newtown, maybe five or six years ago. And I, I was playing a gig, a party. And um, a, a lady who was a guest at the party, who is now my booking agent, said to me, um, well, do you, uh, do you do shows for older folks? You know? And uh, I said, uh, why, why do you ask? She said, because I'm a, I'm a booking agent and I think you'd be, you'd be good for that kind of work. And I said, I play anywhere where there's a piano and they pay me, I go, you know? <laughs> so uh, she, she sent me out of my first couple of gigs and lo and behold, to my great surprise, I absolutely love the work and I, I do it several times a week and it, that, that's been my job now. And what is it that you love so much about it? Here's the thing. Maybe I'm speaking for all musicians, you know, but what makes you feel good about doing this kind of work is feeling that you make a difference. I have done jobs where I was probably better paid and playing in a fancy venue, you know, uh, 
fancy hotel or a ballroom or something like that and playing for some kind of uh, social function. But it was like, I don't know, I guess it could have been any band, you know, and uh, or any DJ. But when I do this type of work, I am aware that I am having a, an effect on these on these folks. And it's it's almost like being a, a therapist of sorts. And um, I, I know that I am making a difference in the quality of life of these uh, folks in my in my audience. And that is just such a such a great feeling. And I guess part of it has to do with the fact that the audience is just sitting there in rows of chairs. They're actually paying attention to what's going on. You know, they're not um, uh, they're not sitting there and eating and ignoring the music. They're really they're really with you. And I have over these years learned how to shape the program so that it it has really um, a strong effect on on the listeners. And it's really um, it's it's really a great feeling for me. And how do you find that you have the biggest effect on people when they're listening is it i would imagine just a combination of things some things that are running through the top of my head are like picking pieces that are from a time period they remember fondly or even just the way that you perform the piece with your expressions and things like this you know uh, yes of course that that is, is is important you know i remember when i first got into the business as a young fellow our boss said to us now, boys, remember, the, the best way to lose an audience is play songs they don't know. So, you know, when you're playing for older folks, you have to, you know, play songs from, from back in the day, you know. But um, the thing is, it's it's not – I don't know if it's so much the playing as it's almost like um, – I think it has to do with the listening that I do. You know, I'm, I'm listening to these audiences and I'm really tuned into – their experience and and what kind of uh, effect the music is having on on my listeners, you know, and um, that's uh, that's part of what makes the job special and and make it so so rewarding. Yeah, that's very interesting too because I actually just interviewed a creative director for a advertising agency, and he's run marketing campaigns for big clients like Microsoft and things like this. And he actually talked about that same thing with listening to the client, listening to their needs and adjusting <laughs> to that. And so it's funny that you both mentioned this in two very recent episodes. And then on top of that, I was just thinking about how you talk about that fulfillment of making a difference, like how that affects you. Yes, and I think yes. that's really been something that's connecting a lot of these interviews I've done because you know no one wants to write a book or paint a painting and someone looks at it and shrugs and then moves on. You want them to have a profound experience or have something that sticks with them. You want to feel like you made a difference. And I don't know if it's like the community aspect of that or what it is, but I think that's definitely something that people can relate to. Yes. You know, I, I think back in the day, even when I remember when I was, uh, I had a wedding band in Philadelphia and I'm playing a lot of weddings and bar mitzvahs, you know, and um, I felt that what I wanted for my listeners I wanted them to feel, I wanted them to walk out of this four-hour gig, whatever it was, feeling that something happened, you know. And um, when uh, my listeners leave my my senior citizen gigs, these are one-hour shows, but I, I know that they feel like something happened. And it's it just, that's the the part of the thing that puts a smile on my face. You know, it's it's 
interesting kind of work also because outside of the fact that my listeners are all older folks, they're all completely different. Every audience is completely different. And um, I don't I don't know if you know much about this sort of thing, but in uh, describing people who live in retirement situations, there's there's all these special classifications or categories like uh, independent living or assisted living or skilled nursing or memory care or so on and so forth, and they have to do with the with the functionality of the the the, the um, people, uh, their ability to take care of themselves, and their ability to to think clearly. So I I don't know until I walk into a situation whether I'm going to be. Uh, in a, in a room full of people who are basically just like you and me, but like a little bit older than us, you know, but, or whether I'm going to be among a bunch of people who they don't really know what the heck's going on, you know, and, and my, and my job is to communicate with these folks no matter what. And I, I find it just fascinating. You know, it's when you're an entertainer or a band leader or a DJ, you know, they always talk about reading the room. You have to read the room to, to play the right kind of music at the right speed and the right volume and so forth. And when when I'm uh, working with one of my audiences, I have to go in there and quickly read the room. And um, sometimes it's it's a pre-sold audience because I've played for them many times. And when I walk in, they say, Jeff is here. Yay. You know, <laughs> but sometimes I, I walk, I had a gig last week. I really didn't know what to expect. And there was a stage and a baby grand piano and it was it very, very nice, very professional. And when the audience came in, these folks were just on planet nine. You know, they just, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't know what I was going to do for these folks. And I just, you know, it was a Christmas, uh, Christmas gig. And I'm just playing my my Christmas songs, you know, and kind of going along and trying to think if there's any way that I can, you know, communicate with these folks. And somehow... About halfway through the show, some of the people there started to respond or react, which was really nice. And by the time this gig was over, this whole place, everybody, people were singing, they were dancing, they were, you know, they were interacting, you know. And it was, for me, it was the feeling of uh, having like maybe like watered plant, like a plant that hadn't been watered in a long time, you know, something like that. Um, Sometimes I, I think of the movie Awakenings, uh, which is about um, this, the uh, neurologist Oliver Sacks, you know, working with his patients. And sometimes it's, it's like that. And it is it is just so, so satisfying. How many pianos have you owned throughout your life? <laughs> I have owned I have owned a bunch of pianos. You know, most I think for most of my adult life. What I had was the uh, the piano that I was using when I was teaching you when you were a boy, which is a sort of an upright, you know, a nice upright piano. But I've had, you know, a series of uh, electronic uh, musical instruments, and uh, that's that's really been fun to uh, have instruments that can imitate all kind of sounds. And uh, for for me, I I remember going through the the history of 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 electronic, electronical musical instruments, you know? And, um, uh, I remember when the, uh, for instance, the first, the first generation of synthesizers came out, that was a big deal of, uh, uh, the first generation of, uh, commercially affordable 
synthesizer, digital synthesizers. And that was a that was a big change for us musicians. You know, uh, one of the people who was uh, instrumental in, in the founding of synthesizers was a man by the name of Robert Moog or Robert Moog. Some you may have heard the name. And you know, this this guy was the inventor of the Moog synthesizer. This is and this guy installed one of these synthesizers at my college, which was in Binghamton, New York, where it's snowy up there, you know, probably snowing right now. And uh, we were all thrilled to, to meet Robert Moog, you know, the, the, great, the great inventor, and, uh, and, and meet him at our college. And that was in the late 60s. But synthesizers were not something that you could, you could buy. It was something that they had, it was, a, it was a big thing that took a whole room. By the time we got into the 80s, synthesizers were starting to be a, a keyboard that you could put in the trunk of your car. As the decades went on, these things got lighter and lighter and, and easier to use and better sounding. And uh, um, so I had a, you know, a number of these, you know, uh, uh, digital keyboard synthesizers and so forth. And, and, and a lot of pianos too. Each, each one has a, has a long, uh, long story. <laughs> Thinking about the synthesizers there and it just, the convenience of having a keyboard or things like this. Yeah. This might seem like an obvious question to people who have studied music or played piano growing up or things like that. But obviously having a keyboard that you can throw in the trunk of your car, super simple and, you know, often much less expensive. But what is it about having that? What, what, how do you differentiate a real piano or what do you call it? Acoustic, I think they call them acoustic pianos now. Yeah. So having an acoustic piano, why is it that with all the modern day conveniences that the the acoustic instrument still reigns supreme? You know, um, I remember uh, when I was back in my 30s, I used to subscribe to a magazine called Keyboard Magazine. I think it was for a while it was called Contemporary Keyboard Magazine. And all us piano players and keyboard players would read this every month to find out the latest equipment that we could get or should want, I suppose. And um, uh, the one thing that was impossible to imitate was the sound of a piano at the, in those days. But it was the electronics was closing in. And at one <laughs> one month, the cover was a, a picture of a baby grand piano with a with a with a crosshairs like a, like was in the Target. You know, it's like you're not going to be around long, buddy. You know, we're gonna you're going to be replaced by something with uh, you know circuits. And to some extent, you know that that has happened, and we're real happy that we have decent digital pianos that we can we can take on gigs. But um, for I can only say for me, you know, I guess this is different for everybody. Uh, just the the feeling of of playing uh, playing a real piano. It's you know, a real piano is is it's it's not made of circuits. It's it's made of wood. You know, it's it's made of wood and. And um, when you open the lid and you play the sound, the sound comes out and it and it hits you. And the 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 feeling with which you touch any single note as you change that that touch, you know the 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 feeling of the music changes. And it's um you know it's a personal it's a personal experience. It's like playing an acoustic guitar. You you don't have to plug it in. You hold it on you know, against your chest, and when you strum it, it vibrates against your chest. And uh, to, to some extent, uh, an acoustic piano is like that. It's a, it's a, it's an alive thing. When was the first time that you started playing around with music? Were you into it from a very young age, or what part of your life, what time in your life did that come into your life? 
You know, it, it's funny w- w- that you asked that question. Sometimes I, I, I do a show and I play all kinds of music. You know, I play all kinds of songs and I take requests and I do things that are almost impossible. And somebody will say to me, how long have you been playing the piano? And I always say the same thing. Almost a year now. And um, <laughs> so <laughs> they say, wow, you're pretty good. I said, oh, thank you. So I, I, um, I was a little boy maybe five years old. And uh, I had the thing that every little boy wants to have, a teenage big brother. And my teenage big brother, who was 11 years older than I, I was like his little pet, you know? And he would <laughs> show me all kinds of things. He'd say, Jeff, come over here. You know, when, you, when your big brother says something, you just do it. You know, you're just so excited he's paying attention to you, you know? If he said, jump off the roof, you jump off the roof. But, um, <laughs> you know, and he, he taught me my first, my first couple of songs on the piano. And he himself played some piano. And, and actually, he was an accordionist. And I, he probably said to my mom, you know, we better get some lessons for this kid. And I, I started taking lessons when I was, uh, I guess, in the third grade. I came home from school one day and I said, uh, hey, Ma, there's a man in the living room. <laughs> She said, she said, that's the piano teacher. Just do what he tells you to do. I, uh, you know, I started taking lessons. And then I think the first piano teacher probably said, you better get him another piano teacher. You know, he's, he's learning really fast. And they sort of kicked me upstairs until I, I, I got a gal who was, a, you know, Juilliard grad. And she, you know, she could teach me the, the appropriate way to do things. Did you know through those lessons that you wanted to pursue it professionally? Or was it just for fun for most of that time? I just did it because my mother told me to do it. You know, I mean, I didn't, uh, um, I always assumed I would be, I don't know what, when I was a little boy, probably a cowboy, you know, I want to be a cowboy. <laughs> and then when I, when I got to be uh, in high school, you know, I thought I'd be in the sciences, you know, I figured I'd be a doctor or a chemist or something like that. When I started college, I was a, I was a pre-med major. But what happened was, it's funny, when I started to, be in a situation where you had to be really good at stuff, I realized, which I didn't know, that that what I was really good at was music. Uh, I, I made some friends and they said, you know, you're a pretty good piano player. Why don't you, uh, why don't you come down to the music department? And uh, I, I went down to the music department and I started taking piano there. This one kid came up to me and said, he said, do you know anything about music theory? I said, uh, I said, no, what's music theory? He said, that's how we tell the men from the boys around here, you know, see if you can understand, <laughs> understand music theory. So he, he said, you know, he said, then this way, you know, you, if you're cut out to be a musician, I said, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a doctor, I want to be a doctor, not a musician. You know? So I, I went and I, I took my first course in music theory. And when I took music theory, I was hooked because especially the more, the more complicated it got, the more I liked it, you know, it was just something that I, I guess I just had an intuitive feel for. And, um, whereas, uh, chemistry and, uh, especially quantitative analysis and calculus, these, these were things I did not have a, an intuitive feel for. And I remember one time I was in a class and the teacher was lecturing about some, you know, fine point of music theory. And the fellow next to me was, was, scribbling furiously in his notebook to try to understand what the teacher just said. And I said to him, I think this is funny. He said, I said, are you right? Are you right doing this writing? Cause you're trying to look busy in front of the teacher or you really didn't know this. He said, no, I didn't know. <laughs> I said, do you know this? I said, I, I, I said, I, yeah, I, I said, he said, how do you know this stuff? 
I said, I don't know. I just know it. You know, I just know it inside of me, you know? And I realized that this is probably something that, you know, musicians have. It's, it's just that all the logic, the, the, the structures of music that, that make sense and maybe have to be taught to, to some people, th- those things are already inside of me. So I just uh, learn what the names are. That's, when, you, when you hear this, that, that's called so-and-so. Oh, I didn't, know, I didn't know it had a name. You know, I just, I knew it was a thing, but I didn't know it had a name. And then, then I started to say, you know, I, I might be cut out to be a musician. You know, I, I think I, I think I like this. You know, when I was in college, of course, uh, it was in the '60s, and the Beatles were around, and the Rolling Stones, and I was in my first band, and got to play to dance, and everybody's, you know, hundreds of people are jumping up and down. I said, oh, this is a good job. You know, I like this job. Yeah, it, that reminds me too. I think a lot of creative people can relate to that, no matter which field they're in. I think about writing novels specifically in storytelling uh-huh. and it's, I think it's really important to be learning and taking, like I take different audio classes and learning from people who have been writers for a long time and, and trying to get better and improve my craft. But there's a certain element that's just baked in there. I, I remember learning about the hero's journey for the first time and different plot beats that are supposed to be there. And I took these plot beats and I was like, okay, I better make sure my story follows this and then to a t it already followed it like i had already <laughs> naturally stuck yeah. it in there and so it kind of reminds me with the what you're talking about with music theory it's like well there's just something that that i guess if you're drawn to a certain craft i think that might be a good way to tell if you're cut out for it or if you really do like it if there's a certain part of it that just comes naturally yes 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 that's right uh you mentioned uh, the hero's journey just now were you referring to Joseph Campbell? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, well, that that's funny because um, I just uh, happened to watch some of the uh, the interview with Bill Moyers on TV. Did you ever see? Okay. His yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. You know, we're all we're all on our journey. You know, we're all we're all trying to uh, you know find find our way and find our path. This is what makes what makes life exciting, and. Um, uh, when I was a young fellow in my in my twenties and thirties, I was a big fan of Carlos Castaneda. I don't know if you ever heard of Carlos Castaneda, but he was um he was an American guy who he studied um, with a South American or Mexican a shaman. With there was a lot of peyote and all this jazz, you know, and the stories are just so interesting and wonderful. But his his teacher, who was this like Mexican guru, you know, shaman guy. He he said at one point, he said, you know, there are many paths out there and there are many paths that you might want to try or be tempted or attracted to. And he said, just make sure that whatever path you take, it is a path with heart. And he said, if you choose a path with heart, no matter what happens, you will always be rewarded. You will always be happy. You will be glad you took that path. And if you take a path without heart, you'll be exhausted. You know, you'll just always be tired and wondering what the heck's going on. I, I think for me, although I, like I said, I expected to be a doctor in this life and not a piano player, that, that has been a path with heart for me and, and, uh, and continues to be, you know, into now, now I'm, you know, getting into my mid seventies. 
Um, but it has uh, it has always been that way. I think when I st- first realized that was, I don't know if you, if you know that when I was in my 20s, I was in this rock band in Germany. I actually had 12 or 14 months of what it must feel like to be a rock star. You know, we, my, my very first gig, I'm not exaggerating. My very first gig with this band was in a venue with thousands of people and not only thousands of people, thousands of people who had already bought their records and were so excited to see this band, Sweet Smoke. This was my uh, brother, Andy, was the bass player of this band. And he had invited me to join because they, they wanted to add a piano player. And, you know, we were on television. We played at like these big music festivals like Woodstock, you know, in, this was in Europe. And uh, I said, oh, well, this is this is a good job, you know. And then at a certain point when I felt this was not exactly my thing, I came back to the States and I was living with my my young wife and my baby son in Queens, New York. And um, I got a job teaching piano at a local music school. And and then I was uh, I got a job playing at a little nightclub in Manhattan a couple of nights a week. And I said, well, here I am. A few weeks ago, I was on a stage in Paris, but playing at the Olympia Hall. And here I am teaching people how to play piano at a music school in Queens and playing at a, at a, at a nightclub in Manhattan, you know, it's, and I realized that as long as I was doing music, I was perfectly happy. It didn't matter what I was doing. I, I got equal gratification uh, and, uh, and joy for whatever, whatever form of music I was doing. Um, so I, I learned that lesson pretty young, you know, I was still in my mid twenties. It also speaks to it that you're still doing it and that you want to continue doing it. A lot of times when people are in their mid-70s or either have retired or wanted to retire, but it feels like you want to keep doing this as long as you can. You know, when I moved to Newtown from Doylestown seven or eight years ago, uh, I thought I was retired. I said, oh, I, <laughs> you know, I sold the the little gift shop that my late wife and I had in Doylestown and I sold our house and I, I just moved into a little apartment and I thought I was done. And then I started doing these gigs and the joy that I got from playing this music for these folks and, and the joy that I think they, you know, not to blow my own horn, but I think the joy that they get from the, from the music, I think is, is large. I'm going to give you an example of something that I do with my audiences. This is something that would, that would be in my show. In fact, is in, is in my show. And uh, I like to talk to my audiences about music from the movies. So um, I say, uh, here's some here's some music from the movies. Uh, this is a, this is a song from uh, the, the 1930s, and uh, I ask my audiences if they if they know what it is, and more more often than not, they know what it, or at least they recognize it. And I tell them it was uh, from the from the Wizard of Oz, you know, somewhere over the rainbow. And then what I do is I try to open it up rather than just saying, here's a song from a movie. Now here's another song from another movie. And I, the way I open it up is by saying, does anybody know who was the little girl in the movie? And some people know. Oh, it was Judy Garland. I said, oh. And does anybody know what the story was about? Well, Judy Garland, is she's trying to get to see uh, The Wizard of Oz. Why? To get home. Because uh, in the beginning of the movie, she's on this little farm out in Kansas, and all of a sudden there's this huge and I and I don't say the word I just wave my arms around and they all everybody in the audience goes, 
I, it was a it was a storm. It was it was a tornado. Oh yeah, it was a tornado. You know, I said yes. It was a that's right. It was a tornado, and everything gets blown up. And she she lands in the land of Oz, and she said, "How do I get home?" I said, "Go see the Wizard of Oz." And on her way to see the Wizard of Oz, she makes three friends. And I asked my audience if they can remember who her three friends were. And some of them said, oh, they were the Tin Man. I was, oh, yeah. Anybody else? Oh, this is the Scarecrow. Who else? One more. The Lion. I said, oh. And, and these, <clears throat> these three characters, they all wanted to go see the Wizard of Oz as well. They had their own reasons why they want to see the Wizard of Oz. The, the lion, for instance, he wanted to ask the wizard for courage because they called him what? The cowardly lion. Who wants to be a cowardly lion? He wanted to be a brave lion. Now, the tin man, <laughs> I'll look at my audience and I'll point to the middle of my chest. I'll say, what did the tin man want? A heart, a heart. That's right. And then I'll say, and the scarecrow, and I'll point to my head, I'll say, what did the scarecrow want? Now, some people know it's a brain, but this is a true story. I was doing my show one time. I pointed to my head and I said, what did the scarecrow want? And a lady in the audience said, hair? I said, no, not hair, a brain, a brain. Yeah, and that's so fun too, because you have the audience interacting in a way. I think about that with how powerful that idea is, even again with writing, where you're wanting the reader to complete the picture in their own mind so they're a ah. participant and they're not just an observer of what's going on. And so it's cool to see how that plays, that idea plays out for a performer. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I, I mentioned that. Decades ago, when I was a band leader in Philadelphia doing weddings and bar mitzvahs, my goal was to have my listeners feel that something happened. Something happened. Something happened to them. It wasn't just that you went and you ate, you know, and you heard a, heard a band, you know. And I think that the key to feeling that something happened is has to do with the involvement of the listener. And and what what the involvement is, and uh, one time <clears throat> I was I was playing a show, and um, this was you know I, I used the expression a little while ago that these folks were on Planet Nine. I was I was <laughs> playing a show for an audience that was on Planet Nine, and I I just did the best I could. And at the end of the show, a man came up to me and said, "I just want to thank you for that for your show." And I said, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad you like the show. He said, it, and he said, it, it's not that we like the show. It's not like we never heard anybody sing or or, or play like that. It, he said, it's, it's. He said, you're you're you pay attention to. You're paying attention to us. It was a great joy for me to uh, hear that man say that about responding to the the people in his audience. Uh, uh, so much. And, and that really made a, made a big impression on me. And I think another thing that's great too, about your performing. And I remember just when you were a teacher for me as well, you bring this element of, and I'm sure our listeners know this from the interview, you bring an element of fun to everything. It's, you're just a fun person to talk to and to listen to. And you've got all these stories, especially when you're putting the show together 
are you thinking on your feet? Are you thinking about things ahead of time? Or are you having an idea between performances that you implement into the next show? What kind of methods do you use to to keep that energy and that fun going? You know, I it, it's interesting. I think it's a sort of a mixture of of stuff that's pre pre planned and stuff that just happens live. You know, I I, I sometimes um, draw a comparison between what I do with music and what what a stand up comedian does. You know, he's he's really bouncing off, or he or she is really bouncing off their audience, and that is really a lot of of what's going on. I I have stuff planned in my head that I want to do, but it's really important that uh, I, I'm bouncing off the audience and that it's really immediate. And this is a, a fine point about you know when I how it feels to be me doing my show. But you know I have I have all these theme shows that I do like music of Gay Paris or you, you know this kind of thing, a music from whatever, television or music from Spain or whatever it is, you know, I have all these different programs, but I'm, I'm in a way a little reluctant to work with a pre-planned show because to do that, I would have to have a set list in front of me or, you know, um, a list of, at least a list of songs, if not a list of the dialogue, what I'm going to say to the audience. And, and I would have to keep lowering my eyes or turning my head slightly just to, to, to read, you know, what's the next thing. And uh, I, I, I don't like taking my eyes off the audience, even for a split second. It's the audience is like a person. It's like a friend that you're talking to. And um, I think that that eye contact is, is, is really important and not just the eye contact, but the feeling that, you're letting them know that you're really paying attention to them. You know, that I'm listening to whatever they say. You know, sometimes, sometimes they're actually making like little jokes or making funny references. And uh, you know, I want to make sure I don't miss anything. And uh, that's, that's part of the joy, joy of what I do. I, I'm not sure if I've captured, captured what it feels like. Changing topics a little bit, but we had talked about the hero's journey. I don't know if you had ever heard that John Williams put into that main Star Wars theme. It is a map of the hero's journey, just that reaching for something, falling down. And, you know, it's like if you follow the notes, it ends up being the path of the hero's journey built into the song. I didn't know that John Williams was involved with that sort of thinking, but I know that George Lucas. Yeah, was uh, was a was a big fan of this whole thing, and that in fact, uh, the the interviews between uh, Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell took place at uh, Lucas's ranch out in wherever the heck his ranch was, you know, and that that he was aware of all these things that the like the lightsaber is like a samurai sword, and the the whole the relationship between Luke Skywalker and Obi Wan Ken- Kenobi, it's kind of like the you know, the apprentice guru relationship that, that he was really aware of all this kind of stuff was, wasn't an accident. Do you find yourself taking, so, you know, Lucas inspired by Joseph Campbell there and implementing that into his script for Star Wars. Do you find certain inspiration that you take and, and you put into your performances? Uh, You know, I, I really do, you know, and there are, I guess the things in my performance at this stage of my life, it's, it's really unconscious. You know, I'm not consciously imitating or being affected by things, but I know that these things are really important to me. 
you know, I, I don't know if you remember, or, or, uh, but when this might have been even before I was teaching you, when I was in my early 50s, I got into this Native American thing. And I took some some courses with this this guy, the tracker out in, out in New Jersey. His name was Tom Brown, where we lived in the woods and, and learned all this. I guess you'd call it Native American skills kind of stuff. But what it really was for me, it had to do with a relationship with the earth. For me, this is this stuff is all connected. Um, the the relationship with the earth and uh, the, the 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 teachers or facilitators or shamans or gurus, whatever, you know, the, to trying to to take some benefit of of their experience and their wisdom. So this is something that I uh, I have been aware of, you know, since I was a young fellow, and uh, now that I'm a grandpa, um, I'm I'm still interested, but. Uh, Maybe maybe I can participate from the other side a little bit, you know, and and share my my experiences with people who are coming up. Yeah, and I think that's super important these days too. That connection to Earth, especially with how everyone has you know their cell phones and we're connected all the time, and or have a more natural way to experience the world around us is important. And it, it kind of feels like it's connected to that idea of the acoustic piano as well. Uh, it, it, abso- it absolutely is, you know. And I think that, uh, you know, I love my cell phone and my computer, you know. It's, oh, how do we, you know, it's so great. But um, it, it, it's a little bit of a trap. You know, it's a little bit of, a, of an illusion. You know, as great as our mechanical devices are, these things are not reality. And it's, it's important for us to recognize that and to know that. And to know to know what reality is, and to uh, stick our heads outside and 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 see the sun and be able to walk around and and, and know what the real world is like. I think it's in Plato. <laughs> if, I may, if I may refer to Plato, uh, there's a there's a thing called the allegory of the cave, and and the allegory of the cave, if I remember it from college, was something like that. There's a bunch of people that lived in a cave. And the, the, the folks that are living in the cave with the fire, they, they see these reflections and they think that these reflections on the wall of the cave is, uh, they think that's reality. You know, they see these reflections on the wall of the cave and they think that's real. And they're, they're missing out on, on the, real, the real thing. They're confusing shadows with reality. And this is some, so this goes back a couple of thousand years ago, these this uh, allegory of the cave, but it's almost like the the, the modern technological version of that is uh, uh, us uh, folks, contemporary Americans, you know, thinking that these these devices that that this is reality, and it's not reality, and so that's um that's a that's a lesson for us, and it's a, it's a lesson that's sometimes not so easy for us to 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 get. Do you think you being involved in creative things helps you to think about those ideas? Do you think that's something, I, I guess it's kind of something that everyone thinks about and grapples with, but I don't know if you find just being connected to your own creativity, if that helps you contemplate those things in a different way. You know, uh, answering your question, it, it's funny because the, the thing that pops into my mind is the subject of gardening, uh, of being an, an organic gardener. 
in order for things to grow, they need certain nutrients. Not only that, but uh, when things have completed their lifespan, plants, you know, when plants have completed their lifespan and they're just junk or garbage, you know, uh, the organic gardener never throws them out. He throws them onto the compost heap where they, they decompose and they become next year's garden. They become the, the nutrients, if you will, for next year's uh, garden. And this, this thing of this life cycle of plants uh, outdoors, and I was always a big amateur uh, gardener, you know, I always had a, a garden to, to some degree. There's something in that uh, understanding, that thing of growth and maturity and death, and then it decays, and then it goes back into the ground, and then it's reborn. And it becomes, like I said, next year's garden. There's something in that that uh, I think informs my um, my way of looking at things, as well as the thing of uh, you know the hero's journey. Um, so I, th- I think I think those things are those things are connected. And just so as to, I'm looking for a, a bridge, a way to connect the thing of the hero's journey with the garden. Well, I think it follows that same path: the you know the rebirth, the death, and the rebirth. Yeah, and- yeah. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with the name Tiknat Han. Did you ever hear of Tiknat Han? No, that's not familiar to me. Yeah, with a complicated spelling, Tiknat Han. I'm not sure if he's still with us or has recently passed. He he was um, a Vietnamese Zen a Zen master. Now, now there's a there's a lingo that people throw around a Zen master, you know. What, what does that mean? But um, it means a teacher, meditation teacher. But this this man was um, a particularly wonderful, wonderful person. As a matter of fact, when he came to America, <clears throat> he visited in the 1960s. After he spent 45 minutes with Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King wanted to nominate him for the Nobel Peace Prize. That's how much he he thought of him in 45 minutes. That's the kind of person he is, you know? And Thich Nhat Hanh, and I'm I'm always reading one of his books. He's got a million books. He's very much uh, into this thing of the the cycle, you know, the cycle of connectedness. And he had, um, I think he said, I'm I'm paraphrasing this. He said something like, well, if you want to know about the world, he said, uh, Eat a piece of toast. You know, and I was thinking, like, where is this going? <laughs> what do you eat a piece of toast? You know, he said, well, because the thing is this: what is toast? What is toast? It's toasted bread. What is bread? Bread is uh, cooked wheat mixed with other things. And what is wheat? Wheat is a grain that grows out of the ground. Now he wasn't making this up. This is true. You know, the grains grow out of the ground. He said, but. They don't grow unless they have enough sun and enough rain and enough nutrients. And the nutrients have to do with little itty bits of different chemicals. And he said these chemicals, you know, he's, he was so he was drawing this comparison between this piece of toast and everything in the world and the sun and the earth. And to me, this was absolutely intuitive. You know, just like I said, when I when I learned the rules of music theory, I said, oh yeah, I get it, you know. And when I heard him talking about this as an organic gardener, as somebody who's always growing a garden, I said, that's right. Everything is connected. And, you know, that's just a, a part of my philosophy or psychology, just because 
it is, you know, that's, I, I think the same way. Well, I think that connects with everything we've been talking about, looking for those connections, whether it be teaching, how to describe something, making a connection between two things, one that might be familiar and one that might be a new concept. Yeah. And then also when you're performing, looking for the connections, whether it be some sort of response in the audience, or if it's like those different connections in the songs that you're playing and how to bring everything together and create a new experience. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to when you were teaching, was there something that you would often feel that you were trying to instill in your students when either when you first started teaching them or, or over the course of time? I think that what I was always trying to instill in my students was just a sense of wonder. That's 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 what I was always trying to to get them to to have. And and um, you know I, when I was teaching the real beginners, the little guys, you know, the first first level students, at the at the end on the last page of the first level book, there was a song called "The Dance of the Leprechauns." And I would always say to my little students who, when they played this piece, maybe they were eight years old, I'd say, now, little Mary or little Johnny, you know, uh, what is a leprechaun? And they would look at me, you know, and wanting to answer correctly, is it a little a little man? i say, yes. And, and are leprechauns real or are they imaginary? And, and the child, wanting to answer correctly, said, are they imaginary? And then I would say, well, I've never seen one. Have you ever seen one? They go, no, I, you know, wanting, again, wanting to be told, I've never seen one. I said, but just because we haven't seen one, that does that mean that there are no leprechauns? And they go, well, I, don't, I guess maybe, maybe there is such a thing, you know? And my feeling is I wanted to put just a seed of doubt that maybe there is such a thing as a leprechaun because I felt that the, the what I call the, <laughs> the stainless steel door of reality is going to come down like a garage door and hit him in the back of the neck soon enough. You know, if I could keep that door of fantasy open for another six months, I, you know, I would feel, I would feel good about it. Jeff, it's been so wonderful having you on the podcast. Is there anything you want to leave anyone with in terms of like, I don't know if you have a website or anything like that, or um, if people are in the area, how they can hear you perform? Probably the best thing is just go to YouTube, put in my name, Jeff Dershon, and you'll see me playing and singing. And uh, my my website is in, in the middle of a, a, a messy deconstruction. You know, we're trying to get that together. But um, that that's a, a fun way to, to hear some of my, my music. And I think you'll enjoy that. And that's it. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks again. And we'll have some links uh, to those YouTube videos in the show notes. Uh, thanks again. It was It was great talking with you and catching up. My my great, great pleasure, and I cannot wait to speak with you again. And uh, maybe I can uh, write a little theme song for you. That would that'd be nice. You can open and close your, your show with the, the Jonathan Tilton theme song. Jonathan Tilton, oh yeah, oh yeah. Yes, we'll have to, we'll have to come up with <laughs> Jonathan, it's so wonderful to hear your voice, and I, I can't wait to speak with you again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause of Craft. You can see some of Jeff's live performances in the show notes and on causeofcraft.com. As always, you can follow the show on Instagram at causeofcraft. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing with a friend and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Those two things really help the show grow. 
And if you have feedback, suggestions, or guest recommendations, send an email to john at causeofcraft.com. That's j-o-n at causeofcraft.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.